It's been really such a learning process to figure out what is pragmatically useful and what is not, and and not shame or or dislike any of those things. Just let them go or work to rely on them less. But the the embodiment story, I mean, it's gonna. I think it's gonna be the rest of my life doing this.、Mm. Is just、yeah. like you don't work out once, you work out all the time because atrophy is the norm. And so, for me, my state of atrophy is to go more independent, more disassociative, more curious. And the working out is to lean in, be more vulnerable, be more tethered. To someone else, or to experience, or to my own body, and I am in the process of befriending my body and my feelings. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles, and I'm your host, Mackenzie Vo. Hey everyone! I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest today, Jedediah Jenkins. Jed is a New York Times best-selling author, deep thinker, and a storyteller who invites people into a greater understanding of themselves and the world around them. If you're like me, you may have been following Jed for years on social media, following his work at Invisible Children, or his inspiring journey of quitting his job in order to pursue a lifelong untested dream, biking to Patagonia and writing about his experience along the way. Jed has an incredible gift of showing up authentically as his whole self, and that's exactly what he did in this thoughtful and vulnerable conversation. Miles and I were so grateful to be able to connect with him. We know that it's going to encourage and equip you to show up just as you are, right where you are today. Join me in welcoming our friend Jedediah Jenkins. All right, here we are, Jedediah Jenkins on the Living Center podcast. What a treat! Hey, buddy, welcome. Hi,、uh, living centered. I mean, there's before and after the living centered program, and so just to be here and hang with you, like I'm always dying to do, and you, Mackenzie, it's just so nice. We're so excited to have you. You mentioned a before and after. What does that mean to you? Well, when I say before and after living centered, that's I was one of those people that. <sighs> I guess I have to zoom out a little bit, in in the sense where I'm 38, so like growing up in the 90s, therapy as it is was considered something for like rich coastal people or something, or like neurotic, really businessy people or Hollywood people, and it's I've just seen such a very cool shift about examining and exploring our inner worlds and what makes us who we are and how that is just. Becomes so not only normal but understood to be crucial to like be a human, and it's not seen as weak, but it's it's seen as like your head in the sand, like an ostrich, if you don't, you know, at least in the circles that I run in. And so that said, I had never really done the like lay on a couch and talk to somebody vibe. Not that I'm against it, but I've just I've just never felt like I had the money and. Now there's so many resources. I feel like there's almost no excuse. But living centered and on site was really my first exposure to anything like that, where it's a intentional experience, exploring what makes you who you are, and levels of trauma and expanding the definition of trauma 
um, to mean anything that's not nurturing and simple things like that, which really I had never thought about. And I guess I didn't feel that I was allowed to have, I felt like I was taking up space if I was going to talk about my childhood or my problems, even though I grew up as a gay kid in the South and the Bible Belt, that's not easy, but I had loving parents. I was never hungry. I was never physically or sexually abused. I don't know. I just had a lot of like expectations around that, that I wasn't, I wasn't invited into those spaces and living centered really did invite me in and completely gave me tools to see my life in a profound way. And I write about it a lot in my latest book, like streams to the ocean, because it had that big of an impact on me. One of my favorite things, you know, I haven't gotten to know you and being your buddy over the years is how is the, your ability as a storyteller. Cause I think of you as like a philosopher, a storyteller, um, a, a brilliant orator when you, you just, you're, you have such a way with language and words, but there's something, and you did this in, in, in the, in the book you just mentioned, your most recent book where you, you take a concept and then once you get interested and curious about it, you divulge yourself in it. And this is what I make up. You tell me if your process is different and then you have a way of telling it, uh, that translate it maybe better than the people that created the content to begin with. And I think you did a great job with that, which I guess it's a gift of you being a storyteller and a great writer is you talk about it and it feels like it puts a human face on the experience. And that's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about being with sitting with you, getting to know you, but particularly when our worlds merged and when you got passionate about what we're doing, you experienced it. And then you start talking about it. I was like, Oh, I just want to put, a recorder and follow you around when you tell these stories, because I think I'm so immersed in, in the language and the landscape that, um, I, I, I kind of do therapy speak. I try not to I'm conscious of it, but anyway, I just wanted to start out by affirming the intentionality, the wit, the heart, uh, that you put into, um, your own story and the human experience for other people. It's been really meaningful for us. And, you know, you've, you've served as a great bridge. There's a lot of people that are uh, entering into their own transformational process or therapeutic process because of you sharing your story. Wow. Thank you. I mean, that is so encouraging and it's very much what I, what I hope to bring because I grew up at so confused by my own existence that I it, I really worked that muscle hard to figure out what do things mean? Like, what is it when you say this thing, let's zoom out and see like the forest for a second because we're so in the trees. And that was my deconstruction of evangelicalism, my deconstruction of American exceptionalism, my all these things in which I was raised. I just, to zoom out a little bit and see things in context became the thing that kept me alive. It kept me sane. And so the fact that I've been able to scam the world into turning that into a career is fantastic. There's a thing, and tell me, I pray that you've heard of this because it came to mind while you were talking, and I, I'm i sure I remember it wrongly. But have you ever heard of a Quaker circle? Mm, no. So a friend of mine named Ben Kesey did this with me once, and it was so profound. And it kind of reminds me of what of the affirmation you just gave me and what it is, is i guess this was a tradition in the in the quaker community but you get together with five or six people that know you 
and you talk about what you're working on. You talk about where you are and, and it's something like that. And then you get to talk for five minutes and then everyone around the circle talks for two and they tell you basically what they believe your strengths are, what they believe is your like exceptionalness and what they think you should be doing next. Like they just say, and they can say whatever they want. And sometimes because you're so in your own head to hear multiple people tell you, and sometimes one of them will say something completely out of left field, but that's, that's how they see you, that you would be a great race car driver or whatever it is. Like they just see different things and it's really profound to hear people speak from a little bit of distance at your life intentionally, and you're going to do it for each other. And I, I'm sure I'm getting details of it wrong, but it's something like that. And I just remember having the entire circle of people focus on me. And it's specifically about things you're doing. It's about career. It's about where you're spending your time. And so it was it was just deeply clarifying. And I kind of think we should do it like every couple of years. Mm. So that's what I accidentally did for you, just by seeing what you do with a little distance. Mm. When you start talking about what it was, I didn't know the origin, but it, it's very much like a circle of trust and a few tools that we would use therapeutically in our context. And I am, as I was affirming parts of the way that you think and some of the ways that you show up, I'm tempted, like I always am when we talk, to zoom out and talk about concepts at 10,000 feet and how we might be able to shift and shape or create some paradigm shifts that would better the human experience. Cause you're good at thinking in that way. And I, and there's no doubt we'll not have to go there just cause it's you and I talking. We love that space, but I want to start um, by having our listeners just really get to know Jed beyond Jed, the writer and the, you know, the public profession, the public persona, because I find you to be a pretty integrated guy, but you talk one of the things you say in your book that really spoke to me is you were reflecting on your experience. You, and I, I think this is the right quote. You said, I was a mind at a distance versus a soul in a body. Mm. And I can relate to that. Um, I think the human experience over the last year and a half could probably relate to that. But what's it been like for you to go from, a mind at a distance to a soul and a body and kind of where are you now with it? Well, I really think that that was probably the biggest takeaway from on-site was really learning about how my tendency to disassociate and see the world at 30,000 feet was a defense mechanism to waking up into a body that got me in trouble a little gay boy where if I moved a certain way or I was a little too swishy or I leaned on a boy's shoulder, I got in trouble. And I was, I didn't even know what I was doing. And so it made me very afraid of my body. And so I decided that, you know, what feels really safe is when you completely disassociate from your own life and you just watch it like you're watching TV. And I was raised on TV. So I, I'm sure the neurons connected there. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because, you know, as Richard Rohr says, the goal is to transcend and include. It's you're not throwing out babies with the bathwater. It's figuring out how this soup of your existence came to be. And some of it actually turned out to be good and some of it you don't need anymore. But everything 
that you adapted to was there to help you in a moment and in a season, pretty much. And so, you know, Onsite taught me that I am terribly independent and I do not receive help well, nor do I ask for help well. And I learned that through the process of experiential recreating my family and seeing how my parents who loved me were so busy taking care of my siblings that I was left to fend for myself while I'm going through these scary bodily changes and getting in trouble here and there. And so I just learned to fend for myself and figure it out on my own. Mm. And that has ramifications as a 30-something because now in romantic relationships, it's really hard for me to ask for what I need. It's really hard for me to feel like I deserve anything because I'm just fine on my own. And because I'm so 30,000 feet away, I look at anyone who's treating me in a way that hurts as, well, they have a story and they're going through something and there's certainly a reason why they're doing this and it's not about you. You know, like I immediately don't allow myself to feel. And yet that disassociative response was what turned me, I believe, into a writer, which is I have my dream career and I live pretty much my dream life. And so that is one adaptive behavior that I'm grateful for in every way. And then the other one, the the hyper-independence, I'm trying to learn to say, thank you for all you've done for me, but it's okay. I don't need you anymore. You can go. I'm allowed to have needs and I'm allowed to be vulnerable and connect with another person. And so I've just really, it's been really such a learning process to figure out what is pragmatically useful and what is not and and not shame or, or dislike any of those things. Just let them go or work to rely on them less. But the, the embodiment story is, I mean, it's going to, I think it's going to be the rest of my life doing this mm. is just yeah. like, you don't work out once you work out all the time because atrophy is the norm. And so for me, my state of atrophy is to go more independent, more disassociative, more curious. And the working out is to lean in, be more vulnerable, be more tethered to someone else or to experience or to my own body. And I am in the process of befriending my body and my feelings and I do think, I mean, I do think I'm relatively integrated in the sense where I do have a lot of language and tools and I do have a lot of self-love and self-worth. And so I really am in a friendship with myself. I do believe that. But there's still a long way to go. Thank God I'm not that old. Like, I'm glad it's a long journey. Yeah. Mm. I feel like... um that permission to feel and own into your own body is such a beautiful picture. Um, And so I wonder what are some of the landmarks or the high points in that journey? What did that look like? Because I know you didn't just one day arrive as this transcended, integrated person. A lot of it to me has been entangled in sexuality, Mm -hmm. in rejecting my body as an object of desire I mean, to this day, it's still hard for someone to tell me like they think I'm beautiful or whatever. And then I can know it conceptually that they're attracted, but it's still a journey. Right. And I think it always will be. And then what's so funny is as as you make more 
gay friends or as you make friends with anybody, you learn that that some of the people that you think are the most beautiful you've ever seen have that exact same wound. They can't Mm. believe it either. And they stare in the mirror and they hate themselves. And it blows your mind because you, with a little distance, is like, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Or just the magic of falling in love with someone and maybe their body isn't ready for the cover of Men's Health magazine, but for whatever reason, the chemistry, the magic, the specialness, every freckle, every wrinkle, everything on their body is perfect. And that is what I think is an invitation, the invitation of love for all of us. It's like someone out there thinks exactly what you are is the most beautiful embodied thing, object of desire that's ever been. And that is so cool. And you just have to believe it. And so truly, the journey of becoming a sexual person after being so repressed for my first 30 years has been a true liberation and and hard. You know, it's like I beat myself up and struggle with stories in my head that these people must be delusional. They must be this or that. And so that to me was a big milestone is actually the concept of feeling sexy with someone was mm. major. And... I don't know, just the the process of exercising and pushing your body and being injured. I got really sick. I start my latest book with getting really sick. Mm-hmm. And it was really is the first time in my life where I've been like out of commission for like a month and a half. And I lost 25 pounds and it was scary. And it was one of those things where the disassociative side of my body or my mind was like, Girl, you've been training for this. Your body Mm. was going to betray you. You are a mind. And who cares what your body does? You're good. Like, if you have to lay in a bed for the rest of your life, you'll just write poetry and it'll be dramatic and amazing. And, And yet, it was this experience of, oh my gosh, my body is just going through something and I love her and she's trying her hardest and I don't know what she's up to. And no doctor does either. And then... Part of what I learned from onside and from conversations with Miles and the whole community was that like sometimes sicknesses like that can be purely psychosomatic. They can be purely from stored stress, from lack of integration, from thinking Mm. that you're disassociated from your body and not knowing the truth, which is that's actually not real. Like your body is always a player in the game, whether you ignore it or not. And so that was a huge learning experience for me. Hey guys, it's Lindsay. I'm here with Candy Shelton, who is a brilliant member of our team at Onsite. She's our content production manager, and she is sort of the guru behind our emotional health masterclasses. And so I wanted to just get her on so y'all could meet her and hear a little bit about why we are both so excited about these classes. Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. I am excited to talk to you about these classes that we've been able to create in conjunction with our clinical staff and around topics that I think are really helpful and pertinent to where we are in life. Um, Topics like grief and trauma and shame and even narcissism, the way that we've been able to create these classes that kind of speak to things that we're dealing with in our everyday lives, um, I think is valuable. And also something that I'm incredibly passionate about is making emotional health resources 
available and accessible to all people. And so that's what I think we've been able to achieve through uh, through these classes. And so I love that they're accessible. I love that they're affordable. I love that they're practical. They're easily digestible because they all sit at right at an hour or less, and then they're just going to meet you where you are. So I've really enjoyed being able to help make these come to fruition. Yeah. One of the things I love about the classes is you really start to like get to know the personality of some of our different clinical team members. And they're all so different. So each one sort of has a different flavor. And so w- while you're learning, you're also getting to connect with them. And they just are such, like you said, a practical resource around really focused topics uh, that we are yes. all sort of dealing with in our day-to-day lives. So hope you'll yes. check them out. You can go to onsiteworkshops.com slash classes. And if you put in the code podcast, you'll get a special $20 off just for listening and sharing the code. So uh, we hope that you'll check them out. Thanks. We've kind of got this really cool little ecosystem where we get to follow through the people that will come to experience our work. Our guests will get to follow certain themes that we see out in culture. And one of them that we've always seen, but I think we saw more prevalent now as things feel more open and available to discuss is the struggle, the universal struggle and shame around our sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I... I've experienced some sexual trauma. I had a really messed up relationship with sex based on that trauma. And so I used to think I was unique. But in the same way that I love one of the things you say, and by the way, I think you really do a good job of honoring your family and telling a tough story. In in your book somewhere, you said, you don't have to have um, shitty parents to inherit, is it wrong thinking? Don't have to have shitty parents to inherit Mm. wrong thinking, which I thought was so poignant. But I don't think you have to have a sexual trauma in order to inherit wrong thinking about your body and about sex. Because we get these these messages that imprint us. And I don't know, I'd just love to hear you speak into that. You kind of did when you talked about your own experience. But how do you see that just around systemically around humans in general? It's so it's so all entangled in identity and life and our mo- our most base simple desires of to love, to have companionship, to have family like it's all tied together and one of the most basic elements of that is the desire to find a mate and to be yeah. attractive and to be worthy of someone you're attracted to. That is like what rule number three of being a human. And so, of course, that's going to be a universal struggle because also, if you think about the component parts of the journey towards partnership, we're all looking for someone that's out of our league. That's like, that's, everyone wants to boast that like, oh my God, look at my boyfriend, look at my wife, look at my partner. They're out of my league. That's the dream, right? And what the subtext there is that we're all punching up, like we're trying to reach towards something better than us, which implies a hierarchy of value, which is just, Mm. and I don't know if this is natural. I don't know if it's evolution. I don't know if it's cultural. I don't know if it's some combo, but that's the rules of the game. And so we are all imprinted with this fear 
of not being worthy and of if we are worthy, then, well, if we do achieve the very thing we want, then the story is I must brag about how lucky I am and how I can't believe this happened. And the goal is you both feel the same way. And so to me, with that primer, you have people going through puberty and you have people and that's almost what middle school is for, is, is that horrible sense of comparison. And as you're comparing, sometimes you come out on top. I remember reading this fascinating article in, I feel like it was Newsweek, but it was about, they studied people who, quote unquote, peaked in middle school and peaked in high school in terms of their attractiveness. And they found that people that peaked in popularity in middle school had the worst outcomes as adults. And what the article went on to say was that if you think about, if you're being extremely affirmed as, as a middle schooler, chances by other middle schoolers, chances are you're a hot bully. And so, and that is as your identity is forming, it's locking into your brain as, oh, acting like this gets me brownie points. Like I benefit mm. when I act like a 13 year old hottie. And so I'm going to keep as your identity, your identity goes yoink and it grabs onto that. And then newsflash when you're 28, that is not cute anymore. Everyone's like, can you be nice? What is wrong with you? And to me, it, this is all woven together, you know, and it's been such a journey. Like me having like I puberty was not good to me and not only that, I'm discovering that I have a problematic sexuality in the community that I was at a Christian private school. Yeah. And it's funny. I did a calculation. I know exactly where I was. I did a cal- I was being bullied in seventh grade. And I was like, okay, I can either be mean and I know I can be mean because I'm smart and I can shred these people or I can be nice and funny. And it was this moment of like, I'm just going to be so nice that these bullies like have no reason to hate me. Why would they do? And it worked. And it was, it was a defense mechanism. I think most personality traits are. And I I don't even know if I'm anywhere near circling your question. (laughs) No, I just feel like it's all so tied together. It's really hard to speak about it individually. Yeah, this got my wheels turning over here and thinking you sharing that story about middle school like there. Well, first, I felt like affirmed of if I wasn't the popular cute girl, like I'm going to turn out better, like I'm going to be a nicer human. That's thank you for sharing that with me today. That's what I needed. Um, <laughs> but I also think you were sharing about the unworthiness. And I think it's so inbred in us, even when we're like wanting to get someone above our stature or whatever. Even in that, the bragging nature of like, well, then I must then still not be worthy. There's still Mm -hmm. so much unworthiness wrapped up in that of, well, now that I've achieved that, then I must like forever be grateful. I can't ever make it be like, no, actually, like I deserve that or I deserve the love that I'm given or I reciprocate, you know, I give reciprocity to this relationship. I'm a full embodied human in that. And so I think if you take it all the way back to, the middle school, like you were talking about and having that equation of I'm going to choose to be mean and attack other people out of my own feelings of unworthiness, or I'm going to lean in. And so I just thought it was a really interesting juxtaposition as you were talking, 
Um, and it made me think, I know we keep coming back to your book, but I read it this morning and it really just resonated with me is that like our identities and we're not just born into ourselves, like it's created out without our consent. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you would speak to that of like the circumstances and the offhanded comments, and the inadequacies, and you were saying it was a defense mechanism, but it's become so ingrained of how I approach life. And I'm that person. Like, what has the process been like of deconstructing that for you rather than saying, oh, no, like that's a bad part of my personality and I'd like to reject it? It's a, it's another example of my 10,000 foot view is I think because I watch my life as well as live it, I really mm. like it. Like I look yeah. at it and I'm like, I, there's so much beauty around. I have such a beautiful life. And so whatever got me here, yeah, there were some serious problems. But if you, if I pulled any of them out, what would have changed? Like, I don't actually know what I would take out. Yeah. I remember thinking about if you, if you see your life as a movie, what, and your favorite movies, there's always serious drama or else it's a horrible movie. Imagine a movie with nothing bad happening and the the hero just gets what they want the whole time. You're like, what is this horrible propaganda? Get this out of here. And so I look back at my life and the most dramatic parts, the hardest parts, the times where I'm crying, the times where I feel alone, I'm like, wow, look at the strength that built or look at the horrible pattern that built in you that that you went on a journey to fix. And now, like, look at you trying to fix it. That's so beautiful. Mm. Go, You know, good for you. Like, at least you're paying attention. At least you're looking at your own life as if it matters because it does. And once you start to realize that your own life profoundly matters, not only to your experience of it, but just in general, then it, it also takes the wind out of the sails of comparison. Mm. You'll look at someone else's life and you'll see that you think they have it all together or whatever it is. And you're like, they are going through so much and we all are. And, and yeah. to me, that was, I mean, living in Los Angeles, being surrounded by hyper successful people or people at all different echelons of the ladder. And we're, when I worked at Invisible Children and we were just like working with the Obama administration and in the White House and in the State Department, you go, the closer you get to these people who seem like gods, you realize how human they are mm. and how really they're not that much different than you. They might have some different experiences and some different expertise, but they're so similar to you and they're very stressed and they're very worried and they're trying to do their best. And there are way fewer villains than you think. And mm. I don't know, that just changed the way I even see humanity in general or where I see dating, where I see friendships. It's like, I don't think anyone, there's no one I feel like I can't talk to because I'm like, you're a human too and I'm fun. Let's hang out. (laughs) If anybody out there right now listening can relate to that, that part of maybe not feeling like you're measuring up and, or if you compare, you know, hello, I do. Um, Mm. I think it's human nature to look externally for what we don't have internally. Mm. But I want, I just, I I just wanted to, to Paul or take a minute and affirm that no matter who you are, exactly what you said is true, Jed in 
I'm glad you put a human face on that a little bit, Jed, because I just want people to hear that, feel that. I think if anybody walked away from anything in this whole conversation, that uh, what we have inside is divinely ours, and it is 100% enough. And there will be things that uh, we see that we can aspire to, but those are only parts of things, and they're not the whole. Well, I would say, yeah, I would say that, like, the metaphor that comes to my mind is like a, a fishing boat on a turbulent ocean. So it's like the only thing that tools from onsite or therapy or good community or friendship or the it's giving you an oar. OK, it doesn't mean you're not going to work your ass off, break a sweat, get soaking wet and move very slowly. But at least you're moving, you know, like if you don't have any tools and no community and no you're still, you're just floating, like wildly ravaged by the waves. And I'll tell you, if you have success, you have, you, you don't even get a bigger boat. You just get a golden boat. Okay. Who cares? Mm. The storm is still there. You can't get a bigger row. You can't, or, or you can't, it's, that's it. That's the human experience is a little fishing boat and a wild sea. And that's emotions. That's relationships. That's winning. That's failure. That. And who cares if your boat is gold? It's like, are you moving or not? <laughs> uh, another thing I think you said that I wanted to, that I think a lot of people can relate to, I certainly can, is the adaptive element of becoming wildly independent based on, you know, an imprint or parts of your story. And I just wanted to hear you speak about that in real time. You were also honest in the very beginning of our conversation to say, yeah, I still, something I still challenge with in relationships is expressing my needs. But you then referenced, you know, just a couple of minutes ago or a few minutes ago about how you've become more integrated around that. And something we might do in a circle at onsite would be, if you remember, there's a part of experiences where we'll double into somebody's sub-narrative or we'll say, finish this sentence. If you yeah. will. And so I would say, if I were to need. If I were to need. If I were to need, I would feel vulnerable and exposed. But if I were to need and have those needs met, I would feel profoundly safe and loved and whole. And so... I love the way that question frames it because it pushes me to understand that like I'm always protecting myself from feeling abandonment or hurt. And so like, it's really hard for me to even imagine that. Mm. And it, it's so funny because the, the cruel reality of our multifactored existence is you can do a lot of work on one thing and then there's another thing that's tied with it. And so, I mean, the simple example is I have, I have actually done significant work on feeling tethered to someone, feeling needed, feeling loved. But then in tandem with that is my body issues. And so mm. I found myself, I've dated people in the past who've never had a boyfriend because so I only recently realized this because I am subconsciously being like, okay, you don't know any better. So like, this is okay because you don't have other options to like 
realize that this is not as good as it gets. And so I'm, and I'm getting to show you how to do some things. So at least there's some value added there. And then I can feel sexy with you. And so I'm allowing myself to be connected to this person. I'm allowing myself to be tethered to them, to need them. And yet I'm attracted to somebody who I feel a clear quid pro quo with in the body issues mm. story so that I can feel safe. And so like, that's the rub. It's like, why do I have to deal with all of it at once in a relationships? But that's how it goes. <laughs> so that's just a little live update of my life the last few years. <laughs> that was some beautiful self-awareness, I think, in the moment. And I think mm. what you were sharing, I saw you like, like, here's the really beautiful part of it. And then also here's the not so, <laughs> the part I'm digging into. And I think both can exist, right? Like mm. you can be exploring this and allowing yourself to risk and be vulnerable and, and to be tethered to another human while also realizing, hey, there's some brokenness in this. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of mm. the human existence of like both. It's often both and, right? Yeah, I hope I'm not alone. You are not alone. <laughs> Let me reflect back to you that I think a lot in my relationships, I, I'm i like, oh, I'm really just doing really well in this. Or I, I'm i being vulnerable and I'm sharing one of my biggest narratives is that I don't want to need. I don't want people to think I'm needy. And so I'm when I show up and ask for them to like help me out, I'm realizing that I, some of my greatest relationships are people who like to be needed. Because I'm like, well, this is at least safe for me to like have needs because it's also filling your need. Like my best friend mm. is a two on the Enneagram. And I'm like, well, I know that she wants to be needed and she wants to help. And so I'm going to let her do that where this is a safe place for me to try it. Beautiful relationship. Also, I'm seeking out wow. somewhere that it's safer for me to ask for help. So that's what I thought of when you were talking. So you oh are not God. alone in that. Amen. Wow, that makes me feel so human and good. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> so glad. That's really good. Uh, really insightful, Mackenzie. I can relate to that. A lot of people listening to this are people in either curious about their own stories and how they might be able to live into a better version of, of their truth. Uh, they might be in a season of adversity or challenge. And we like to leave them, if we can, with like, you know, maybe something practical that a guest does in their life that would kind of be a go-to to in a sense pursue that centered part of themselves or live into the authentic truth of who they are to live a little bit more of a centered life and so would you be willing to share what that might be for you i would say that in truth the number one thing for me is when i'm scared of something i make myself talk about it with my friends like, I don't bury it away. I don't only journal about it. I make myself talk about it. The embarrassing thing, the scary thing. I mean, you can see I do that on this podcast because I trust y'all. And it's just, if something will come up and I'm like, uh-oh, I better talk about it. Because I don't want it to live in me, you know? Mm. I think that's another, that's been another unpacking journey of when I grew up, and my entire identity was rooted in shame. And I was so performative in my joy and happiness and fear of being truly known. And that if people knew this secret about me, everything that I have built will come crashing down. And so now that I tiptoed out of that slowly in my 20s and found wholeness and fullness in my identity, in my understanding of God and my community and my friendships, and I have no secrets, 
anything that confuses me or that feels scary or bad, I am radical in my sharing of it with my community because I don't want it to have power over me. And if Mm. they reprimand me, if they say that's not real, that's not true, that's a story, that's not a good idea, great. At least it's not in me growing stronger. And so I would say, I would say, I hope that you listener have someone or some people in your life that would be willing to go on that journey with you of vulnerability and honesty. And if you look around your friends and you think you don't, I bet you one or some of them would surprise you. Mm. I bet you so much of your life is the assumption that people can't handle the real you. And that assumption isn't always true and is, I think, usually false. So good. And trust people with, yeah, trust people with your vulnerability and it might get you further than you think. So good. Mm. I just want to reflect back to you. I was listening to you say that and I think you just had so much confidence Mm. in the trusted voices in your life. Mm. Um, And I just thought it was really beautiful. And you were, we started out this conversation about the Quaker circle And I kept thinking, like, who are those trusted voices in my life and how do I more intentionally invite them into that? And I think it was such a great practical step of I don't sit on this. I don't sit on the shame Mm. or the the stories and the narratives. I like invite other people in and I think it's it's scary and it's vulnerable and it's a challenge. And so and then I was going to ask, like, how do you build those voices? But I love that you preemptively said they're probably already in your life and just like being willing to risk and take those small steps. So. Thank you for sharing that with us. It was so beautiful. Uh, well, we're all learning together. We'll see if I'm full of trash. <laughs> <laughs> Go try it out. <laughs> Go try it out. And if not, then you can blame Jack. No, I think it's really a beautiful risk. Just really quickly, what what's next? What are you working on? Well, I'm working on, Miles, you know, I interviewed you. I'm working on a podcast about... It's basically an advice column. It's more of a conversation with people that are wisdom teachers in my life, but rooted in listener and reader questions, because I, I love a life story. I love a bio, but I actually just love it when really smart people tell me how they live. Like, what do you do? What's, how do you respond to this situation? I just love that. And so I was like, I would love a podcast like that. So I might as well make it. And it's going to be, it's it's kind of, the first season is built around my book, like Streams to the Ocean. It's about the different subjects and we'll see if people like it. I'll keep going, but that's fun. And then I this fall, I got to get going on my next book, which I'm very excited about. So I don't know. It's about, I'm vaccinated and ready to roll. Awesome. Well, vaccinated somewhere. Yeah. I was hoping you could, I wasn't sure if you, that was public or not about the podcast. It, um, it was, I loved our conversation and I'm excited to hear who else you've got coming and um, like streams to the ocean. If you haven't gotten that book, we'll, we'll put, we'll put the uh, link in our show notes and it's incredible. We sell it in our bookstore and on site if you're ever there <laughs> and, so cool. um, and I uh, can't wait to see what you're up to next, buddy. Thanks for giving us some of your time today. You're always so kind with it. We just value and appreciate you. Uh, I could do this all day. It's so nice to meet you, Mackenzie. And I love it. Always great to hang. <laughs> I'll see you when I'm in Nashville, I hope, or at some point. I love that. Yeah. Please do. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you want to hear more from OnSite, find us on social media at OnSite Workshops. You can also find me at Miles Edcox.
When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.